Welcome back to For a Living. I'm Daniel Lazar. For a Living explores working lives. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Turkle. And in my hope to close the social distance, I'm shaping a space to hedge against our daily tsunami of celebrity charades and political pablum by giving voice to good, hardworking people who have no agenda here other than to explore what they do for a buck. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in. You know, 2022 has been a banner year for the podcast. I did a little rebranding, did an ambitious season exploring the working lives of artists, all before returning to the project's mission as it was originally conceived. And I stand here before you driving season eight into the station with 10 more days of classes before my family staycation. And those 10 days, I'm telling you, it's going to be a war of attrition. (laughs) Legit, there's a virtual cornucopia of cold, flu, and virus strains going around my school and my house. My Megan got one. My baby girl Madeline got another one. It's going to be a fight. But, but, if history is any guide and bet... I've staked a career on the proposition that it just might be. Here's my prediction. Are you ready for it? I think I will dutifully fight the good fight, empathically engaging and educating them youths into the last school bell rings, after which I guarantee you, guarantee you, my body will summarily revolt and I'll spend the first days of my so-called Christmas vacation hacking and sniffling and sneezing in bed, having myself a one-man pity party while Miss Megan and Miss Madeline go about the business of baking cookies and making the house come alive for my boy, jolly old Saint Nick. Yeah, that's right. Your old Semitic pal has found a certain soft spot for Mr. Saint E. Claus. <laughs> Don't judge. Don't judge. After spending most of my life eating Chinese takeout on Christmas, your boy's going to build some gingerbread houses. I'm going to slurp down some hot buttered rum. I'm going to play Silent Night on the piano <laughs> until it doesn't feel secular anymore. Yeah, man, tis the season, y'all. You know, speaking of which, one of the first patrons of this here podcast, uh, an old neighborhood pal of mine, a, a total street urchin <laughs> who prefers anonymity, and, and rather to my chagrin, I should say, he refuses to join me on the podcast despite having one of the most uniquely fascinating jobs around. Anyway, this cat, Frankie B., he sent me a DM to tell me that he went to go see Mac DeMarco at the Riviera Theater. Said he had the time of his life, aside from the fact that he was like 20 years older than everyone there. Uh, Been there, Frankie. Know what you're talking about. I got the feeling. I got the feeling. Anyway, Frankie said he popped into Cookies and Carnitas before the show. Said he had a couple of beef brisket tacos. Said his mind was blown. Yeah, Frankie, I'll bet it was. Cookies and Carnitas blows minds. That's what they do. They also sponsored every episode of season eight of this here podcast. And as season eight comes to a close, so does this chapter in the history of Cookies and Carnitas. 
But justice for a living will return with a fresh new life in 2023. So will cookies and carnitas, but with a fresh new face. After more than a decade serving the uptown community in Chicago as cookies and carnitas, on January 2nd, 2023, Brad Newman and his crew will reemerge as Brasserie by CNC. New look, new feel, same mission. A commitment to the uptown community, the best fresh local ingredients, service with a Cheshire cat grin, and an obsession for detail. French food with Mexican flair and a comfortable space that welcomes all comers. Yo, thanks for your sponsorship of the podcast, y'all. We'll check back in with you when the dust settles. So look, I might be out of a sponsor for a while. This means you, my friend, can step up. If you support the mission of For a Living and you dig the program, I've got an easy way for you to show your support. Just head on over to patreon.com slash for living. You'll find the link in the show notes. I am more than happy to reward you for your support. You can get a little something in exchange for a wee donation. And hey, if you got to take a free ride, I get it. I've been on that train. But you can still do your part to help. Here's how. Do this. Hit the follow or the subscribe button right now. Do you find it? Punch that there button. And now that you're a subscriber, tell a friend or a loved one just to listen to your favorite episode. And this, <laughs> this here might be your favorite episode. Because today I'm joined by Alexandra Skinner. Alexandra is an environmental policy advisor to the German Federal Environmental Ministry. And she and I explore the work of looping in stakeholders, pursuing democratic processes, and really we just talk about being wholeheartedly committed to public service. She ties up season eight perfectly. You'll see, you'll see. Just join me in conversation with Alexandra Skinner. Alexandra Skinner, welcome to For a Living. How do you describe what you do? Well, thank you for inviting me to be here. Um, I'll try to give a coherent answer. Um, <laughs> what I do is not always easy to describe, but um, I guess we can start with my job title. I'm a policy analyst and advisor for the German uh, Federal Environment Ministry. I'm actually on a secondment there, so I work for an agency that is sort of under the Environment Ministry, and I've been seconded uh, specifically to work in the area of G7, and so international environmental policy, but also on certain specific subjects on supply chains. Should I be more specific about <laughs> like my actual tasks? Yeah, please. Okay. Um, yeah, so I don't know. As I said, I don't know what level of detail you're looking for here, but uh, also I, have, I would want to explain that my role is a little bit different from a lot of other policy advisors in the ministries, specifically because of this secondment. I'm working in a number of different divisions, which is unusual, but for me, it's really exciting because I get to see really a wide variety of different 
work that is done by the ministry. And I get to be involved on international negotiations on the one hand, um, and really involved in international processes like G7 and some OECD processes, but also looking at the national level in Germany. For example, there's a new supply chain act that's coming into effect early next year. And I've been involved in working on communicating how that could be implemented and in sort of discussions with stakeholders about uh, what information they need and how best to supply that information. So I'm deeply curious to get into all of that. But before we do, I hope you might kind of give a little bit of biographical history. Like, how did you get on this path? How did you find yourself working as an advisor to the German government? <laughs> yeah, I think it's a, it's a mix of something that I was always interested in and, you know, just coincidences that um, you end up somewhere because you're in the right place at the right time. I actually originally moved to Germany intending to only stay for a short time, have an adventure after after college. When I was clear that I was going to stay longer, I hadn't quite made up my mind what I wanted to do, but I was thinking if I went back to the U.S. that I would probably either go to law school or do some sort of policy work or, you know, maybe do something totally different and teach. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Um, I've always been really interested in environment and environmental policy. So I did my bachelor's thesis on, on environmental policy. And Germany is a great place to do that. Um, so at that time, which was the late 2000s, Germany was definitely a leader in a lot of areas in terms of environmental policy. And so I did a master's program, environmental policy and management here. And then I worked for a little while at the university where I did my master's program. And then I ended up working in a think tank. Um, and there are quite a few of them in Europe that specialize in environmental policy. And this was one that was located in, in Berlin and also had a lot of European level projects, which I was very interested in. The, here it was kind of the coincidence more of the subject area. So environmental policy is a huge area. And as you can imagine, there are many, many different specializations. And I just sort of applied for a job that I thought I had a good chance of getting yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> because it had a big English focus also on the European level. It was also interesting for me, I have to say that. But it was in the team for green economy there. And I hadn't really thought that much about that area because I think, you know, I had been doing a lot of climate and energy policy before, which is sort of what gets a lot of attention. But as I started working in this green economy area, which focuses more on sort of policies to encourage companies to, yeah, let's say green their production, I think that I saw how, how really crucially important that was to so many different areas. So it really covers everything from climate to, let's say, more traditional environmental impacts like uh, water pollution or air pollution. And I think that it, it was really clear to everyone, including <laughs> me, that without getting companies on board, these environmental goals and climate goals were not going to be met. So I decided to just stay in that area. <laughs> you know, I'm soon to have a think tanker on this here podcast. And I know I'll dive further in with him, but I hope you might do me a favor. 
Maybe could you compare for me the think tank policy work to government policy work? Because you were in the think tank community for a while, right? Several years. Yeah, I was there for um, seven years. And I think there are different types of think tanks. And there are also, um, at the place where I work, definitely we were coming up with ideas, but we were more focused on the practical implementation of advising the public sector on how they can reach specific goals that they had. So we weren't as focused, let's say, on generating ideas and schemes and suggestions and sort of um, pushing them as we were on looking at a project that that the government has conceived um, and said, okay, well, we want to do this. We want to have more information on how we can implement this law or how we can achieve this goal. And in order to do that, we're going to need to study. And we were the people who we made a proposal for the study and then would carry that study out, for example. But within that, within those studies, within the advice, within any of the projects that we carried out, we had a certain amount of let's say, leeway to make our own suggestions and say, okay, this is what the evidence leads to, and so this is what you should do. But as I think um, we all know, just because something is a good idea doesn't always mean that it's possible to implement it on a political level. And that is where I would say that's the biggest difference between working in a think tank, or at least my experience of working at a think tank, and working for the government is that when you work for the government, you have to do what is possible. You know, you you have to actually take that next step and make it a reality, whether that's in terms of a law or some position that the government takes. But you're not the only person who is making that decision. So there are a lot of different voices involved and it needs to be a politically acceptable solution. I mean, it's the same when I go to negotiation. For example, at the think tank, I could present the results of my study, say these are our clear recommendations, and it really is 100% what I believe there. Whereas, you know, when I go to a negotiation, I have to represent the position of the government, whether I personally agree with that position or not. And all of us who are who are advisors um, have, you know, I say a very good say in, in shaping the policy, but in the end, um, we have to take a lot of different people's opinions and positions into account. And that's something that you don't have to do when you're doing some more independent think tank work. So what was it exactly in light of those circumstances that made you want to pivot from the think tank world to the public sector? I mean, there are a lot of different reasons. Um, Some of them were personal, but like if I'm focusing on the professional reasons. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's hard. I, some days I, I still miss the, the think tank aspect. So that freedom that you had, but at the same time, I feel like now I'm able to have a bigger impact. So I don't have the same freedom that I had in terms of making suggestions and, you know, coming up with, with solutions in terms of, okay, this is, this is a suggestion I'm going to make to somebody who then is going to make the decision, a policymaker. Instead, I am right there helping to 
guide the decisions that are representing the policymakers, let's say, or being a policymaker myself. And so in that sense, it's more restricted, as I explained before, but when you manage to achieve something, you feel like you do have a bigger impact. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. But I'm curious that when you look back on that part of your career in the think tank world, and then reflect on what you do now, I wonder what you learned about government work that you didn't know when you were in the think tank world. How was your thinking about policy and policy implementation and the possibilities therein? How has that changed? Yeah, I think the main the main change in this sense is I think like a lot of people before I started to work for the government, I was often very frustrated by, oh, not to say that I'm not occasionally still frustrated, but um, <laughs> I think I was very frustrated by the sort of the slow pace of so many things or like, you know, we would invest so much effort into a study and really try to make it impactful. And then, you know, only a few of our recommendations would actually be taken up and, and make a difference. And once in a while you do see with the study, you know, you do see a, a big impact in the, in, in the sense that, uh, you know, sometimes the study can really open people's eyes and it can start be the starting point for, you know, laws or, or negotiations or whatever. But for the most part, we were, we, I can remember saying to colleagues sometimes like, okay, so what's going to happen to that? We just spent like six months of our life on something and it's going to end up in somebody's desk drawer. Yeah. And, you know, five people are going to read it. I was frustrated about that because I thought, okay, so most of our clients were public sector. And I thought, why aren't they using this more? Because they want this information and, and they thought that it had a purpose and why aren't things moving faster? And I think now that... I'm working inside, I, I understand why things aren't moving faster. And it has a little bit to do with what I mentioned before, that at least in a, in, in Germany is, is, is the country I can speak to, of course, the most. But, you know, it's been my observation that <laughs> similar processes take place in, in other yeah, yeah. democratic countries that I'm familiar with. And that the process of policymaking is so complex because there are so many stakeholders involved. And when you have a democratic system, you can't just say, okay, we think this is a good idea. This is what the evidence says. And so we're going to do this exactly this way. You can't because, you know, there may be unseen effects. You need to take other people into, into consideration. So you need to, to first you know, do a consultation with stakeholders. You need to also consult the positions of other people in the government. In the end, it's what I hear very frequently described as a whole of government approach. So in order for something to be really effective, you need to have it being implemented in different areas. So it, it can't just be something that, you know, the environment ministry goes out and says, okay, we're not going to do this anymore. But basically, if it doesn't really work or it conflicts with laws that are being made by other ministries, that's never going to work. And so you have to have everybody sort of on the same page, everybody involved in the process, even if you have one particular agency or ministry in the lead. And that all just takes time. And it's always a process of compromise. And you can argue about 
whether or not it's a waste of time to fight about individual words and phrases. You know, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But in the end, that's what ends up happening because you have to get a product in the table in the end that everybody is satisfied with. And that's the other part that I think I was sometimes frustrated with. Not only does it not move fast enough, it doesn't go doesn't go far enough always, but that's again part of part of this democratic process. Everything is sort of this imperfect product of compromise. And at least I think one thing that I now have an appreciation for that I didn't have as much of an appreciation for before is just how difficult it is to get that end result as good as it actually is. Um and how much work goes into it. Yeah, a ton of work goes into it. Because what, what you do, Alexander, is like exceedingly difficult. And even the most democratic systems that prioritize environmental justice, you know, countries like Germany, policy development is just real hard. I'm going to ask you the most on-the-nose question that's totally going to tee you up. What is so hard about it? <laughs> Um, again, sort of this looping in of all of the stakeholders is both something that I am completely in favor of and absolutely needs to be done because otherwise you have a very undemocratic system, but it also makes it really, really difficult because if you have, you know, a, a draft law or something like that. At every, every stage of the drafting process, you know, you, you do have to consult with other parts of the government, other agencies, um, other stakeholders, so from the public and private sectors. So we're talking about businesses, business associations, NGOs, consumer advocacy groups, environmental advocacy groups. You know, if you're looking at something that's going to affect land use, you know, you have to talk to farmers. I mean, there's really a lot of different factors that go in there. So anybody who's going to be affected by this law, which sometimes is everybody, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. has has a say in it, um, usually via representation through an civil society groups or through specific agencies or ministries that are set aside to represent that or, you know, whose mission is to represent that. But, you know, you have round after round after round after round of negotiation, basically, over and over and over again. And you get through one point and then you have to get to the next point. And so it makes the process very, very long. And it also makes it difficult because you're constantly having to to think about, okay, what can I live with? What can't I live with? Where are my red lines here? How are we going to solve this problem so that everybody feels like it's a solution? Can we solve it in a way that, you know, we have a phased-in approach? So we started off relatively small and then it gets bigger as people get used to and adapt and sort of have the tools in place to, to implement this law. And so that is definitely really, really challenging. Yeah. But I think it's also critically important, and I don't have a I don't have a suggestion yet <laughs> as to how you can make that move faster. And it is something that I've definitely grappled with. When you see, like, okay, um, if you have a non-democratic system, I think 
in some ways it's easier to say, okay, we're introducing this and it's going to go fast and it's going to be effective. But in the end, you don't want that because that can apply to, it's obvious, but that can apply to so many other things besides the things that you like. Right. (laughs) Right. That's exactly right. That's the fear, isn't it? So Alexandra, like you're explaining here, there's lots of stakeholders of whom you must be mindful. Like you said, business interests, lobbying groups, scientists, a virtual cornucopia of environmental NGOs. Now, our our listeners outside of Germany and outside of uh, political science circles, I suppose, might not know that the German government uh, operates in what political scientists tend to call uh, a corporatist, pluralist, accommodationist policymaking process. Like this type of system where the government brings in all of the partners, the stakeholders, the interests together at the table to develop and write policy together. And this system that the German government deploys, it has inherent advantages and disadvantages. We don't need to iron those out here. It's not like a political philosophy discussion. (laughs) But but I would, I would like to learn a bit about how you interface with this. I I, I guess to mix metaphors, I have kind of like a how the sausage is made when too many cooks can spoil the stew question. (laughs) And uh, I guess I should ask you this, like, how do you, Alexander, describe your approach to getting stakeholders to, to communicate honestly and effectively in the process of policymaking? Regardless of the process, uh, one of the things that I have been involved in a lot personally is having actual so stakeholder workshops. So this happens quite frequently that um, stakeholders from different backgrounds. So sometimes it's a mixed group where everybody you know, is invited together and there's usually some sort of input from think tanks or, or scientists or both. And then you know, we discuss whatever the aspect is at hand that we're, that we're working on the policy aspects, and then hear everybody's perspective on it. And sometimes these can be just targeted to a specific group. So you have, you know, mostly companies and business associations there, or you have just mostly NGOs and other civil society groups there. But it can also be a totally mixed bag where you have people from everywhere joining the discussion. These can be small workshops, sometimes they're bigger online workshops. And that is something that I think has has really been a benefit of having more and more things online the last few years is that there have been more opportunities for for these kind of discussions for for informational um, offerings on the one hand, but also workshop discussions. I'm not sure that always the same results come out (laughs) as when you're in person, but it's definitely good that, that there have been so many, so many options for that. So that is really the biggest way I would say where we're looping stakeholders in. The other is there are a lot of very formal processes that need to be followed. So consultation processes, sometimes we do commission consultancies or, or, um, NGOs or organizations that specialize in this to to also give reports and, and lupins from, from different stakeholder perspectives so that they will really be talking to somebody who's neutral and then we just get the report so it's anonymous. 
Oh, cool. Um, so, I mean, I think that that, that allows more honest feedback in some cases. Yeah. And then the more formal thing besides the consultation is also within the government. There is a lot of consultation among the ministries themselves. And so that is, that is a process that also takes quite a long time. So in listening to you walk me through this, I find myself curious about what you know about negotiating with a diverse group of stakeholders that maybe you didn't know a decade ago. Like, what have you learned about this that you could teach fools like me about <laughs> complex policy negotiations with various stakeholders in the, in the democratic system? And there are a couple of things that come to mind and you know I actually have on my to-do list uh, when I have time to take um, take another class in, in negotiation so I'm probably going to say some things that are really really obvious to everybody who's had I'm ready. <laughs> more in-depth um, experience doing that but um, yeah I think one of the things that isn't always put into practice but is really essential is to listen to what the people that you're negotiating with want, but also to really understand why they want that, because it's not always for the reasons that you think. And sometimes it can lead to being able to think outside of the box and come up with a solution that's acceptable to both sides, because sometimes people get really heated or really tied to specific positions for good reason. It's really important to them. But sometimes if you can take that step back and think, okay, why do they have this position? Why do I have my position? Maybe there's a solution that we can come to. Because in the end, we actually both want the same thing, but we're just disagreeing on how to get there. Yeah. And trying to find that common ground is really, really essential. I think on the other hand, though, and I think, you know, I knew this before, but I really see it now um, in my, if not day-to-day -day work, at least month-to-month -month work, week-to-week, yeah, yeah. <laughs> week, uh -huh. um, is that sort of the difficult thing about this kind of work is that in the end, you make everybody a little bit happy and nobody really happy. That's what a negotiation is the essence of it is is that you know somebody is going to come out maybe with a little bit more of what they wanted than the other person but it's still not what they wanted to begin with because you know they had to make some concessions and as frustrating as that can be i think that it's really important to recognize that that's sort of the product of of this democratic process first of all but second of all to like look at your successes and your failures in a different way because you don't always get the outcome that was the ideal outcome for you and they don't get the outcome that was the ideal outcome for for them but you've made a step forward and that in itself is a success yeah that seems like the right way to, to look at it since you brought it up i'm kind of curious about how your time tends to be divided. Like you have these meetings, but you also have to do a fair amount of, of, of reading and writing and, and, and thinking and reviewing policy. Like 
When we get into your workday, can you give me a sense of proportionality here? Like what percentage of your time is in meetings on Zoom or otherwise? What percentage is reading or writing or reviewing policy? That's a tough one because, I mean, that is something that is also a really big difference to my work that I did before. My days now are much more spontaneous. So um, sometimes you start off in the morning and you think, oh, I don't have any meetings. I have some stuff that I want to get done. You know, I need to read this. I need to write these emails, but it's going to be a light day. And then something pops up (laughs) and suddenly you're, you know, involved in reviewing all of this stuff. You have to get it. You have to consult a whole bunch of people within a really short period of time. You have to bother them until they give you answers and then, you know, get the answer back all within a couple of hours. That makes it difficult because it's really variable. But if I had to say like just roughly, I would say I spend about a third of my time in meetings and two thirds of my time writing emails, analyzing documents that are sent to me, setting up different consultation processes and things like that. Yeah. Can I just ask, because that sounds really unsettling to me. The notion that you should wake up, establish your agenda, set forth some goals for the day. And then as you describe it, it sounds like as often as not, the agenda that you carefully created for yourself just goes the way of the dodo burden that you're putting out fires and responding to whatever someone just threw at you. Is that frustrating? Is that just the nature of the work? Is it both? It's both. (laughs) Definitely. I mean... Yes. it's So it can be really exciting because you think, okay, this is great. I'm being consulted on this. This is our chance. We can really get our position in here. And you do have a little bit of this adrenaline rush while you're organizing all of these things. And then you can send it off and you're done with it. And so in that sense, yeah. it is incredibly frustrating and stressful while it's going on. But when you're done with it, you're done with it. And then it's like, oh, okay, now I can just do my other things that I had planned the next day. And that's as long as you stay flexible about that, I think that that's, that's okay. As stressful and frustrating as it is, but having this very short period of time in which you have to get something done because then it's done and you can just kind of turn your brain off a little bit for the, for the evening, which is something that I sometimes have trouble doing personally when I'm working on something longer term. Yeah, I feel you. I have a, a similar kind of response my response can be like really emotional like if I feel like uh I didn't make the type of progress that I needed to make on something that I deemed to be pressing it can uh it can make a evening on the home front (laughs) decidedly less enjoyable (laughs) uh speaking of uh decidedly less enjoyable I just walked out of a spate of meetings all of which I found to be unfulfilling as the understatement of the day, you said that you spend about a third of your time in meetings. And I wonder what you've learned about what makes for effective meetings. Um, I think, <laughs> I think the number one thing I would say is for an effective meeting would be to make sure that we really need to have a meeting. <laughs> yeah. And also to make sure that only the people are present who really need to be present, because I think that's sometimes a problem. Yeah. That you have somebody there and you invited them because 
there's like one little aspect that you want, want to talk about. I personally find that really frustrating when I'm invited to talk about one specific aspect, but then expected to be present for the whole meeting. And then occasionally it doesn't even get to whatever the point was that I was supposed to talk about. And so I thought, okay, I just sat here for two hours. Yeah. That that's definitely frustrating. Although, you know, everyone I know just ends up answering emails and doing other things during that time anyway. Yeah. Um, I don't want to say I do. No, you don't. Um, but but I, I think, uh, so to, to answer your question, um, I think to, what to make it effective would be having a clear agenda and having somebody sort of leading the meeting who is not afraid to be like, okay, that's a really good point, but we need to move on because we need to get this done and we need to get the result that we need at the end of it. I'll tell you this. I don't run a lot of meetings. I don't even go to a lot of meetings. You hold meetings. Since a not insubstantial part of your work is creating meetings and bringing them to life, it would be cool to hear you talk a little bit about how you do that. Okay. So I would say if I'm, if I'm leading a meeting or going to be playing, let's say, a starring role... I like to prepare it beforehand in terms of at least making sure that I have an agenda. And I sometimes do this for other people as well. When they don't put an agenda together, I suggest one because (laughs) it's really important to me that the topics that we're going to to talk about that are actually really important that we need to like get cleared up by the end of the meeting are clear to everyone before we start. And I make sure to kind of loop people in. It's my own personal preference that I really like to listen and hear what people say and, you know, take that into account, make sure that they know that they're that they're heard. But at the same time, you know, using humor or whatever, at the end we have a clear decision about which way we're going to go. And sometimes that means having to shoot down somebody else's idea. You know, not that people don't occasionally do that to me as well, <laughs> but yeah. I think that sometimes, you know, I, I I feel like I'm, you have to go in there and say, okay, we've discussed this again. We know how everybody feels, but at this point, you know, we're just going in circles. So what is our decision? And we're going to go forward now to the next point. That's hard to do, but it has to be done, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I have to say that, to be honest, I find it good when other people do that too in meetings, even if that sometimes means that, you know, whatever my point was, I realize like for me, I've gotten used to the fact that I, what I want is I want it to be heard and taken into consideration. And if I don't get, you know, whatever it is exactly that I wanted, I want to make sure that it's sort of in there. It's on everybody's sort of consciousness. They understand that it's out there. It's sort of going into the final decision, even if the final decision isn't the one that I suggested. And so, you know, I think when you're, maybe when you're starting out, I think at the beginning of my career, I used to take some of those things more personally. And I've just learned over time that it's not personal. You know, it's just colleagues having a discussion about how they can make things better or how they can reach a a result that's acceptable for everybody. Yeah. Well, and when you think about everybody... You know, you work for an enormous firm. You know, the German government employs something like 5 million people. And I, I hope you might talk a bit about how that feels. Like, let me ask you this. Is it more empowering or is it more disempowering? M- more comforting 
or more discomforting to be part of such an enormous and powerful machine? I think I can see both sides of it very clearly. I guess it depends on the day if you feel like it's more <laughs> empowering or disempowering. Yeah. But in general, I try to look at what I like about it. You know, I think it's obviously frustrating in terms of, you know, there are a lot of people involved in, in decisions. There are sometimes ridiculous discussions um, or discussions, sorry, discussions that I think are ridiculous. <laughs> but that's actually one of the nice things about being part of such a large organization is that, you know, if you think a discussion is ridiculous, you're not necessarily, it's not necessarily noticed if you don't take part in it. <laughs> right, right, right. Whereas like, you know, if you're in a very, very small organization, every decision, all of that is, you know, you kind of have to pick sides, let's say. Yeah. Instead of being like, I can't believe you're all making such a huge deal out of this. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so things like that. Um, and I, and I find it comforting also in the sense that, I feel safe in my job. So at least my personal experience has been very positive in that my supervisors have always shown, you know, a great deal of consideration for and respect for our viewpoints, for our personal situations, for our jobs which I really, really appreciate. Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, I can't speak for all 5 million people working for the German <laughs> government, but yeah. my, my experience has been really largely positive. And, you know, despite it being a very large organization, of course there, sometimes you think, oh, I'm filling out this paper and um, this process that has to be followed is just very complicated or just maybe unnecessary. In the end, I think most of the time I've always ended up having just very positive interactions with people who, who I need to get in, in touch with to sort of follow these protocols. And if I don't know them, then they're very supportive of that. So my experience has been very positive, but I am also aware of the fact that like, you know, when you work for such a huge, huge organization, some people find that really unsettling and you know, you, you're maybe not as effective or you don't have the voice that you would have if you were in a much smaller organization. Yeah, for sure. But one way or another, right, the German government has proven to be a leader, if not the leader, on developing environmental policy. And with that in mind, I, I wonder what you wish more citizens knew about, about the promise and the peril of producing public policy in, in this democratic context. And I, I just want to add this, because I think I ask this question in light of what both you and I know is a age of cynicism about government, even among the people who tend to trust government to do big things there is a substantial and still yet growing frustration and, and cynicism about government. And, and I don't have that, in part because I know people like you who are working within and for governments to make policy. 
So what do you wish more citizens knew? Perhaps you could help to disabuse them of some of their cynicism <laughs> or reinforce it. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. No. Um, I mean, I, I think, and this is something that I, that I have, you know, actually experienced in, in the past, past few months that, you know, talking to somebody who is going to be negatively affected by a law that's in place. Um, I saw a lot of frustration that they felt like they weren't being heard. And a colleague and I who were in the meeting, you know, speaking with him, we both personally agreed with him. But, you know, neither of us was around in, you know, in our current jobs at the time that the law was drafted. But the law itself had sort of a different purpose and was, you know, the the process of a of a compromise. And I think, you know, not to repeat myself too much, but back to what I said at the beginning with with the the democratic process and how difficult this, you know, making sure that all stakeholders are consulted and, you know, coming up with something that works in the end that that is not just a good idea on paper, but it's something that pragmatically everybody can accept that really takes a lot of work and sort of by the nature of it, it's less that it takes a lot of work. A lot of people work hard every day. It's more that the nature of it is, as I described, nobody's 100% satisfied. And I think that is something that I wish people would know is that there are, you know, within government, definitely voices that agree with you. There are definitely people who are arguing the same thing that you are arguing but in the end, our job is to come up with a compromise that works for everyone. And, you know, there are voices that are arguing against that as well. And we need to find a solution that is acceptable to everyone. And the alternative to that is having a, a non-democratic process or electing a different government. I mean, that's yeah. always... <laughs> Yeah, Although cards. I'm not sure how that would look because, you know, compromise is necessary in, in, in any case. And I think that that is definitely a message that, that I would like to, to give is that in the individual level, there are so many different opinions, so many different arguments taking place sort of behind the scenes. And what you see outside is just the product of, of democratic compromise. With that in mind, as you may know, a number of younger people listen to this podcast. I have students and former students who are kind enough to tune in. And a not insubstantial proportion of them are what I might describe as environmental nihilists. They just think that the ship has sailed, there's nothing we can do, and they've given up on the government as an agent of change. Not only do they not look elsewhere for solutions, they've just given up entirely. And perhaps foolishly, I don't identify with them at all. And I can't imagine you do either, given the work that you're so deeply committed to. Can I ask you what your message is to those people who feel like they have nothing left to do but give up? Well, first of all, I would say I do understand, um, or at least partially understand. I, I'm not in their shoes, but... Um... You know, I have moments too where I feel really depressed about climate change and about the direction that the that the world is taking in some ways. But I look at it from the perspective of giving up basically guarantees 
that that's the outcome you're going to get. And I think that sometimes we expect too much of ourselves and of our of our institutions in and that can be positive, but it can also be negative. And, and it's negative in the sense that you think, okay, if I can't change the world, if I can't make this enormous, enormous visible difference, then it's not worth doing anything at all. Um, you know, I think about my son who loves soccer more than anything, and he would love to become a professional soccer player, and he's not going to become a professional <laughs> soccer player, but he's sort of realizing that now. And he's saying like, I really want to just keep playing because I love it and I'm getting a little bit better. And I know that this incremental approach, when you look at at, at government is incredibly frustrating. I'm frustrated by it too. Sometimes Um, all of my colleagues are that I, I, I know, but at the same time, we do have our little successes. Like we do have our ways in which we're moving forward. Sometimes they're even big successes. So commitments that that um, governments are making and, and, and actually following up on. I mean, if you look at where we are now compared to where we were 10 years ago in terms of environmental policy, in terms of commitments, in terms of even just awareness and acceptance of the, of the, the reality that we are in a climate crisis, that we need to do something about it, a lot has changed. And some of that is, you know, attributable to, to civil society. A lot of it is. There, there's been so much really good civil society action, but there's also been action within government. So there have been people within the government pushing for this. And we see that, you know, in the end, you do have some effects. You do have some successes. We also don't know. So there's a lot of uncertainty with a lot of these outcomes and predictions. And, you know, I mean, looking at the climate crisis is one that I know pretty well. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know. Everything could be worse than what we predicted, but it could also be better. And I I look at it from the perspective of, you know, it's also kind of what I would like to say to, to, to climate deniers in the sense of, okay, but look at if we could do something and we didn't do something, isn't it worth the risk to just try it? You know, I mean, even if you think it's not man-made, we could still make a difference if we do something. And I see it the same way in terms of, especially if you do believe in it, that if you just give up to hopelessness, you're guaranteeing that that's the outcome. Whereas if you're trying to do something, you can make a difference. And you know, that can be anything that gives you a feeling of having more control. So it can be changing your own lifestyle in ways that you feel like are acceptable. Again, I wouldn't push anything in that direction because I think it can cause a lot of resentment if you feel like you're the only one who's making huge sacrifices and nobody else's. Like, I see this as squarely a policy problem. But, you know, every little bit helps. And I do firmly believe that you know, I've seen positive, positive developments. And I think that we can make a difference. And even if we have to accept outcomes that we didn't want for a long time, or outcomes that are less than ideal, I'm still personally convinced that they're better than just giving up and not doing anything at all. I am with you, Alexander Skinner, 100%. And I'm also with you in that you and I are both public servants. And I'm curious, 
what does public service mean to you? So I think on a very corny level, it means doing something that, you know, makes a positive difference in people's lives. I don't know. I guess I've always been pragmatic, so I wouldn't go so far to say I, it had to be something big, but I definitely dreamed a lot bigger in terms of, oh, you know, it would be great to be the first female secretary of state, or no, I guess not the first because Madeleine Albright was already there, but you know, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) You know, or be in like this position of power where you can really make a difference. And and, and I think now I just look at it from a perspective. I'm actually very happy with where I am. And I think that regardless of what you do, whether you're a public servant or, or in any other job, you know, you have to look at the difference that you make. And for me, it was really important that I make that difference, small, big, whatever, in a way that I felt would positively impact a lot of people's lives. I mean, you do that too. And I think you probably, like I, um, have days where you feel like you're succeeding in days where you're like, does anyone even notice? Did that make any difference at all? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's for me what public service is about is that, yeah, that you're making a positive impact on the general public. Well, I appreciate you and I appreciate you saying that. It genuinely warms me, so thanks. And that should be enough, but what can I say? I keep asking for more. Alexandra, I was hoping you might be willing to share two stories with me to help drive this train into the station. First, can you share a story of professional failure and then to round that off, share a story of professional triumph? Um, So what I would like to do is illustrate a little bit what I was talking about and kind of combine them into one. Maybe that's cheating, but show sort of triumph and failure in in one story. I'm in. Um, Because I feel like that really, to me, is is sort of the essence of my everyday work. So um, I think the the example that comes most sort of strongly to my mind is from the G7 negotiations for the environment track, which took place in the first half of this year. The environment ministers meeting um, was in Berlin in the end of May. And the division that I was working with most closely within the ministry, we had some specific goals that we really wanted to get in there. So some topics that we thought were really essential for addressing a number of environmental impacts that hadn't gotten very much attention at all on the international level in the past, or at least not in a way where there were firm commitments made to actually really take policy action. And so we went in there thinking, oh my gosh, we are never going to get this kind of commitment, but we're going to try. And so we, we had set ourselves, let's say, a lower level goal that we felt we might be able to achieve. And then at a certain point, in after a couple of of you know, working groups and negotiation rounds had taken place, I thought, I think we could get more. Yeah. And I talked to my colleagues and we came up with something that we thought was like a dream scenario. And we wrote that in and we, we fought for it despite quite a bit of pushback. And we went through multiple rounds of negotiation, including some bilateral negotiation with a number of 
of countries who were very skeptical of this. And in the end, we were able to get an outcome that was historically strong. So it, it went further than any other commitment on this topic had gone in the past. And it was a really, really tough negotiating process, but it was also this amazing success at the end. But when I come back to the failure, we didn't get everything that we wanted. So I would consider that overall a success. Maybe that's, as I said, I'm cheating there. <laughs> um, but we definitely did not get everything that we wanted on there. And there were some things that it was a little bit painful to see go. Yeah. Because we thought, okay, this is just going to be a frustrating small step forward, even though it's historic. We're, you know, we're going further than we've ever gone before, but it's not a leap. It's a step. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but in the end, you know, after sort of swallowing our disappointment, it, the language wasn't stronger on this particular aspect. We looked back and said, okay, look at what we've achieved. We've gotten, you know, a recognition of some really important things that had never been set down in paper before. And we've gotten a commitment to a couple of, of aspects of environmental policy that had never been um, committed to before. Of course, there were a couple of little words in there that softened it up that we would have gladly done without. But um, in the end, we had that. And so I think that that's maybe a really good illustration of what I see on a regular basis in my work. This was definitely something that's more on the success side. You definitely have the reverse where you have to be satisfied with, let's say, a pebble from the stone that you wanted to put in there. Yeah. So that's, you know, the, the reverse side of that that would be more more of a failure and that has certainly happened as well but i feel like everything that that we do has has some aspect of both totally feel you things aren't so tidy to be just successes and failures sometimes and i really appreciate that story i really do one more thing i have to ask of you i'm hoping you might recommend to our listeners something that somehow some way or another illustrates or influences your work it could be anything it's your recommendation um so i have to be honest i hate questions like this <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're welcome <laughs> yeah because i never know what to say but i'm going to go out on the limb here and say that i actually recommend a tv show like for example the simpsons Yes. Because, you know, my kids have, have been watching this and discovering it. And it just reminded me how important it is to, like, keep everything in perspective and to keep a sense of humor about things. Because, you know, I work with really serious topics. But at the end of the day, the main thing to, like, keep us going on everything is to, you know, not take yourself too seriously. Keep a sense of humor about things. If you get defeated, there's always the next battle. I love it. However, I am obliged to ask you, for it is indeed the question, with which Simpsons character do you most strongly identify? <laughs> so I think um, my brother would say Lisa. Uh -huh. um, he was very convinced that I was very similar to Lisa, although I take some umbrage with that. 
I think now I'm not as young as I used to be. I definitely notice I identify quite a lot with Marge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I realize is a very predictable answer, but I like Marge. Wow. Yeah, I mean I'm I'm Ralph Wiggum. So, there. Oh. <laughs> the one who's always picking his nose and falling down. Um <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm definitely not Bart. I mean, I've always been quite clear on that. <laughs> yeah. I think we all kind of want to be Lisa, right? But if you say Lisa, like if, if one answers a question, like I'm Lisa, I'm concerned about those people. Like if they have the, the moxie to call themselves Lisa, like I want to be Lisa, but I know I'm no Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've actually never really identified that strongly with Lisa. I felt like she was always very sure of herself in a way that I'm not. Right, right. May may we all forever be Maggie. Yeah. I was thinking about Maggie, but um, <laughs> here again, I can confirm something that has come up quite frequently um, in in my family. I I, I talk too much to be Maggie. <laughs> Well, I am so grateful that you hung out and talked with me. And I will confess to you, Alexander, that as, as a concerned citizen, uh, as, a, as a parent, you know, I suffer from perhaps a reasonable amount of eco-anxiety. But just knowing that you and perhaps some other people like you are working day after day to combat climate change to make the world a safer, more just, more verdant place for our kids and for our kids' kids. It helps to quell some of that anxiety. So thanks for your commitment to environmental justice. Thanks for doing the work. I really appreciate it. And thanks for being on For a Living. Thank you for inviting me. It was a lot of fun. I always appreciate a good opportunity to talk. <laughs> <laughs> especially with you, Daniel. Oh, I appreciate it. We did it, buddy. <laughs> and there you have it, my friends, my conversation with Alexandra Skinner. And you know what? Maybe that's exactly what I'll do over the holiday break. Maybe I'll get a trial membership at Disney Plus and hit my kid to the glory of the Simpsons. Mo Sislak, Hans Molman, the comic book guy? <laughs> yes! Yes, indeedy. That is decidedly what I'll do. The Simpsons, Santa Claus, and hot buttered rum. All right, that's what I'll be doing. You? Here's what you do. You follow this show wherever you get podcasts. Maybe leave a review. And if you dig what you hear, please tell a friend or two. And if for a living means something to you, and you have the means to give a few. It is indeed the season of giving. Please head over to patreon.com slash for living. Now I'm smacking together a ninth season. I'm going to take a couple weeks off and relaunch in January 2023. Yep, 2023. It's going to happen. For real, new year and a new season of the pod, which is going to take flight with an air traffic controller who was recommended to me by another patron of the podcast, Carl Hauck. I got high hopes for season nine. Why not? 
Where are we? Where are we without hope, y'all? Come on now. And I got high hopes for you all, too. I hope you make big plans for the holiday season. Splurge a bit if you can. Be like Tom and Donna and treat yourself. And hey, listen. I hope that despite the desperately funky times, you make space to truly rejoice. And whatever your religious inclinations may or may not be, I hope you make perfectly good excuses to breathe slowly, to smile, and to laugh some hearty laughs with your people. Season's greetings to one and all, and I'll be hollering at you in 2023.